Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining you today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Jane Meseglia for a conversation about art in the Hellenistic period in the Eastern Mediterranean basin. Dr. Meseglia is a lecturer in ancient history at the University of Leicester, based in the UK. She is an archaeologist and ancient historian. She has written many publications over her career, including authoring the book, Body Language in Hellenistic Art and Society, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Janie. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to chat with you today, Janie. So when we're chatting about the, um, the Hellenistic period, to create some background and context for the conversation, uh, what, is the, uh, what is the Hellenistic period? Oh, that's a very easy question with a slightly complicated answer. I, for most people, the Hellenistic period is the bit that sits between what they normally learn about ancient Greece and then they later pick up with Rome. There's this kind of gap between the heyday of the Golden Age of Greece and then the end of the Roman Republic and Julius Caesar. So in easy terms, Hellenistic is what sits in between. But actually, it's this amazing, glorious period uh, which comes after the death of Alexander the Great. So after he's just conquered this amazing swathe of, um, of a territory between mainland Greece and all the way to Pakistan, then his generals carve up this world between themselves and become all these little warring kingdoms. It's a little bit Game of Thrones for a bit, and that really is the Hellenistic period. It's distinctive from other periods because it's a time when there's Greek influence in places that didn't necessarily have it before. So Hellenistic means Greek-ish, so it's a sort of mashup of Greek culture with local cultures, wherever that is. So a mashup of, say, Greece and Egyptian culture, or uh, Greek and um, Anatolian culture. So that's really what, what Hellenistic is. Yeah, Pat, uh, Professor Pat Wheatley has been on the show and we, we covered uh, Alexander, the, um, the life of Alexander, the, the, the third of Macedon, King, King Alexander. And uh, yeah, he basically, he used, it was funny because he used the term Game of Thrones, if I recall as well, um, <laughs> afterwards in, in, in describing it. And I'm paraphrasing, of, of, of course, I, I don't have the recording beside me, but I feel like he said something like it made the Game of Thrones look light or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. And, uh, I actually, I did hear that episode, so oh, I don't know whether it lived in my brain then, but particularly <laughs> you get into royal families that are kind of swapping brides between each other and, you know, beheading each other and sending each other, you know, severed heads in bags as birthday present. I mean, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't imagine a more sort of Game of Thrones type period. But it's also kind of really culturally interesting because people are officially anyway, speaking Greek in this really widespread area. So they're communicating. It's a bit like, you know, we think of English leading the way in the globalization of the world now. The Hellenistic period is the same, where this version of Greek that we call Koine was kind of the shared language over this huge area and people were sharing ideas. And so there's influences, you know, passing around between places that had not really been in much contact before. Okay, so let's then pivot to, um, because you laid some background for the conversation, including there seems to be some commonality, commonality with, with language. And we, we, before the show um, started, we talked about 
talking about uh and well we've been out in and out naturally in different areas but you know we're going to talk about modern day greece uh egypt um i'm sure uh maybe some some of the levant will get into the into the conversation um so can you talk about if we're talking about art in the hellenistic period can you create a bit of a panoramic uh if you will on um on what what, what are we talking about in terms of art maybe you can bring in the different sculptures but i know and i know it's a big you know it's a big question but can you can you create a bit of a panoramic view of uh what we're talking about today in, in art in the hellenistic period Sure. We're really lucky in the Hellenistic period because not only have we got a really big geographical playground to work with, but we've also got huge quantities of materials of all types. It's incredibly rich for an archaeologist or an art historian. And that goes from massive big showpiece monuments like the Great Altar at Pergamon, um, sort of great big uh, colossal temples like um, Ephesus, um, and those kinds of things. But we also go through much more modest uh, art. There's a huge boom in the period for uh, sort of life-size honorific statues that set citizens are setting up of each other. There's a lot of competition in the cities, but local dignitaries that now we don't remember are all busy setting up statues of themselves and their families. And then even to domestic decoration, uh, we don't have a lot of evidence for this kind of thing really in the classical period because of how things have survived and also the kinds of places we excavate. But because we've got some really lovely Hellenistic urban sites that are preserved, we've got a good idea of how people were decorating their homes. So little figurines, they remind me a lot mm. of the kind of thing my granny used to have on her shelf, these little ladro ceramic figurines of sort of shepherdesses and things. But we have that same kind of material in the Hellenistic period, figurines of um, women playing games and holding their children and these kinds of things that people used to put on their shelves. So there's sculpture from massive down to tiny. Uh, and there's also really odd, quirky stuff in the Hellenistic period, particularly a corpus of um, lucky charms, what we call apotropaic, or things that ward off evil. And they're particularly interested in figurative good luck charms that often show people with disabilities. They were considered um, to have power to ward off evil. So that's something that we see a lot in the Hellenistic period. Things that might be considered, I'm putting scare quotes around this now, ugly art in the, in the classical period, which we associate with a very youthful aesthetic, in the Hellenistic period becomes really embraced. We have images of disability, images of old age and uh, poverty. So in the Hellenistic world, people were interested in social variety and sort of celebrated it in a way that wasn't really the case in the uh, classical period to the same extent, as far as we can tell from what we've got. So, um, and we, we, we connect about this too, um, Dr. Bobu has been on the show in the past. He's a past colleague, uh, a fr friend of yours. Um, and uh, we chatted about uh, the evolution of sculptures in the um, in ancient ancient Greece. And I actually, in prepping for the art chat today, I, lis I, I listened back to that episode and something stood out for me. Um, and she was mentioning that, uh, and I, I'm going to do my best with the pronunciation, um, Lysippus. Who, who was an, uh, he pre produced a sculpture of um, Alexander the yeah. third? You know who I'm speaking about, Lysippus. 
Um, yeah, he was Alexander's personal sculptor. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And um, what stood out for me is uh, in that episode, Dr. Babu basically said that um, Alexander liked him the, the best, or he was one of the favorites, or so, something like that. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I, I, I remember he liked Lysippus the best um, because, he, because Lysippus was able to portray him in a certain way that um, was was and I'm using my my my, my words flat flattering to to Alexander and it had me actually have this thought and I was gonna at, bring this up potentially with you but you 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 um, produced a good segue um, in speaking about the it's almost like the the like these authentic representations of life because I I I you know I I I I wanted to kind of get at is 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 there you know why why doesn't certain people want to have life represented as it is versus um, having it represented the way that they you know might only be some of the time so it, what it's sounding like is that there's more of an authentic there's more um, pieces of artwork that's authentic in this in this period is that what you're is that what you're saying in that in that example of showing the different representations of, of people well it's really difficult to talk about authenticity of course because these are not photos or snapshots or documentary evidence of real people they're still objects that have been made completely from scratch by an artist and so everything that they've made is artificial um, and sometimes it can be tempting to look at these images particularly of say you know emaciated little bodies and, and people with skeletal deformities and think ah oh, these are these are images of real people but these are objects that are often quite uh, precious. They're made of materials often like bronze and they have fancy silver inlays that are being bought by quite rich people. And then you've got to ask yourself, why is a rich person spending money on an object of this type? Is it because they're interested in poverty and deformity? Well, that's not really how it works. They're interested in it because these, these objects have the power to to deflect evil influences. You're keeping a, an unfortunate you know, around you so that your situation is better. Uh, often with these Hellenistic images, on the surface they look like they're images of real people, but then you see that they've been manipulated in order to, for a particular purpose. In the same way that Lysippus manipulates Alexander's portrait to make him look as heroic and dashing as possible, even art of so-called ordinary people is manipulated for effect because art has a purpose whether it's to commemorate a person or whether to ward off bad luck or you know whatever it may be artists always tweak how something looks to make it fit its function so we can't rely on these things as very authentic the the images of impoverished um fishermen you know is a case in point we know that being a fisherman was really tough in the Hellenistic period and we've got lots of textual images that it was really difficult. And when we find these statues of these sort of really skinny uh, you know, men, uh, it looks like these might be sort of authentic images. But then these are mar expensive marble monuments set up by wealthy people in sanctuaries as votive offerings. So they've sort of intentionally been made to look impoverished so that that person looks better so you know art is a really difficult uh, medium when you're talking about authenticity yeah and we're going back um obviously 
a couple thousand years uh, here, at, le- at, at least in this in this conversation. But did you come across any any prominent artists that? Because a lot of what you described so far, uh, it sounds like there was pre- pretenses, like there was you know sort of there was there was purposes in what they were um, doing, and maybe they may, it sounds like certain art was framed a, a, a certain way. Did you come across any artists, and this kind of, t- kind of ties to my last question as well, was there any artists that you f- came across that, that there's evidence that they were really trying to uh, represent what was v- versus some, some uh, and for whatever reason, but you know, maybe it's to, to document it for others in the future, but to really represent the world as it is versus um, some other uh, I'll use the term again, like a like a like a pretense or or a purpose. Uh, no, it, it's the the sort of simple answer because, especially in a pre-Christian period, there's no moral motivation to feel pity or have interest in those less fortunate than yourself. It's a completely sort of different moral environment that we're talking about. And artists make art objects to sell and to please the people that are buying them. They're not reporters. They're not making things to um, make a time capsule for future generations. These are these are people making objects to sell and, and, and for their livelihood. So as far as the objects that we've got are concerned, we don't really have anything that gives us a really unproblematic look at life in the ancient world, I think the best sources for that kind of things really are the um, the texts that they're not without their problems. Um, but that's probably a better source than art because art is by its very nature, it's artificial, it's always framed, it's always manipulated. Were paintings being produced in this period? Yeah, they were, and we're very lucky that we do have some preserved. Of course, the trouble with paintings is that they uh, either on wood panels, so that's their equivalent of the, of the canvas in the period, big wooden boards, or that they're painted on walls, and wood rots and walls tend to fall down, so paintings don't fare very well in terms of their survival. But what we have uh, managed to find preserved are the paintings that happen in, uh, that were executed in tombs. So particularly in northern Greece, in Macedon, in the area called Vagina, we have the royal tombs, which are buried under these very grand uh, tumuli, these big humps in the landscape. And these still have their, their paintings intact. But of course, then we were into the problem again that these are the very rich. So these are the paintings and interests of the absolute elite so the kinds of paintings we're getting on their walls are images of uh, people sitting in uh, royal courts or allegories about um, military victories and these kinds of things. It's just it's not just a problem with the Hellenistic period. It's a problem with all archaeology and art that the materials that could tell us most about ordinary people tend to be the first ones that disappear because they're made often from less durable materials and they are in say, the upper floors of buildings which don't survive or, you know, they're they're just not the kinds of things that that people keep. So, yes, we do have paintings, uh, but unfortunately they don't give us much of a a useful view into uh, every man's life, not in this period. Were um, 
figurines were they um were they used were, were they ever used for secular purposes when i when i think about figurines sometimes in like a historical con context I, th I i i think of them being used for um for for piety maybe maybe certain figurines to represent deities and, and such were they were they being were figurines figurines used for for many purposes or just for religious purposes or just for for secular purposes can you expand on figurines yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And in the Hellenistic period, figurines are everywhere. Uh, there's a particular type of figurine called the Tanagra. And Tanagra figurines, it's, it's named after an area where they were sort of produced in large numbers. And these are clay figurines that are made from molds, so they can be produced on an industrial scale. And then they're painted, sometimes really kind of gaudy colours in baby blue and pink and yellow, and then often with little gold accents in places. They're really kind of showy things. And we find them in uh, burials as grave goods. So we know they had some kind of votive function and we find them in deposits in sanctuaries. So we know that they had you know, a votive religious function there as well, not just in burial. But we've also found them in shelves in people's living rooms, essentially, in uh, in town. So on the coast of Turkey, there's an amazing site called Prayini, which used to be overlooking the sea, but the landscape has now changed. So it's a little bit inland and they call it the, the Pompeii of Asia Minor. It's absolutely magical to go there. Hardly anybody goes and you have this whole city, Hellenistic city to yourself. And it was excavated by uh, a German team, and they found a lot of these Tanagra figurines in their original locations in people's homes. And it's lovely to see people doing art in an everyday sense, not always with this ritual purpose. Uh, I know that we archaeologists, you know, sometimes are made fun of when we find something and we don't know what it's for. We say, "Oh, it must be ritual." Um, but people used art in their in their everyday lives. They decorated their homes, and uh, figurines are very very popular. Did did toys? Um, and I guess it, you know, it, it's probably someone's opinion whether they consider a toy art art or not. I think you could probably produce arguments both both ways. Um, but but did you come across? Um, toys at all and it's related to the figurines uh in probably in some cases um did you come across uh toys in this in this period i haven't come across toys in this period but um i have looked into a, a little bit about the idea of distinguishing between uh something that's a serious art object and something that is not it's very tricky uh but the tanagra figurines on the whole are probably wouldn't have made very good toys because they're often uh, fragile, hollow figures. They have a hole in the back to let the steam out when they're firing, so they don't look like they would make particularly good children's toys. But on the other hand, we do have Hellenistic burials for children that have figurines in them. So, you know, maybe Hellenistic children were very careful with these things, or maybe they're more robust than, than we think. Um, it seems likely that children's toys were made of materials that that don't survive. Wood seems the obvious material for children's playthings, um, but uh, those don't tend to survive in the archaeological record. So, unfortunately, uh, toys is a really interesting area, but it's not very well served. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the uh, so. 
again, the episode with Dr. Bobu, um, she brought up uh, a uh, technology, it sounded like a technology innovation, I believe, in uh, an earlier period um, called the lost wax technique, which my understanding is basically like um, uh, pouring liquid bronze in a mold and there's some clay involved and wax involved but i was getting this sense um and i'm obviously you know using rudimentary uh terminology to, to describe the technique um but i got the sense that that was an innovation earlier um than this than this period um is there is there a, a major innovation that that comes to mind in this period um in, in any of these parts in the eastern mediterranean that uh in terms of producing art that uh that you want to share um, so Olympia Bobby was absolutely right that um, the lost wax technique uh, sort of comes around in the beginnings of the, the 5th century. So by, say, 460 BC, we start to see really big bronzes that are hollow for the first time. And because bronze has got a really high tensile strength, it means you can put their arms and legs in all kinds of exciting you know, postures without them falling off. And so that the lost wax technique is a complete revolution in Greek art. And the Hellenistic period really does rely on that same technology. Uh, so I mentioned before that it becomes really popular in this period for local civic worthies and dignitaries to set up uh, honorific statues of themselves. And we have huge amounts of stone inscriptions awarding essentially each other these honours. There's this big competition to who can set up the most statues of themselves in their city centres. And you really see the technology of the period in action there. There's a, an island that's called Delos. It's right in the middle of the sea. It was a kind of tax-free port. And at Delos, there's a long sort of open corridor that leads up to the temple, which all the local worthies set their statues up. There you can see that that same technique that you were mentioning was the premium choice for the local honorific statues and we know that because we can see all the little uh, feet shapes carved into the, the stone pedestals that they stood on but the statues are missing but they've still got the places where they would have been attached but there are a few where there's just a rogue bronze foot in a sandal still attached so there's not a big technical new invention in the hedonistic period but they just get incredibly good using bronze and more people have access to bronze that seems to be the big change um, bronze becomes very widely used for all kinds of things whether it's for these honorific statues or whether it's for these little good luck charms and that seems to have something to do with this new world this um, sort of new open uh, sort of world filled with transaction and connections between different places trade really kind of booms around the Hellenistic world and the supply of metals is a big part of that. Okay. Um, is anything known... So if Lysippus, um, back to that artist, if, if he was um, producing artwork for Alexander, um, what... Uh, is anything known... So then Alexander uh, was, was, was a... died... Um, at some point, so so was is it known if is it known what happened with Lysippus in terms of uh, his artwork? I 
in terms of after, after Alexander died, is it known what, what happened with Lysippus in terms of his career following Alexander's death? I'm not really an expert on Lysippus's biography, but we don't have, as far as we know, any of the originals. We do know that he worked in stone and in bronze, so he was unusually talented in sort of both media. We do know that he took on commissions from other worthies as well, so he wasn't exclusively working for Alexander. There was a family in uh, Thessaly, in uh, northern Greece, that commissioned a monument uh, by Lysippus. Uh, they set up in, in their, um, in Pharsalus, in their local capital. And then they set up another monument, seemingly the same thing in uh, Delphi. And some of that has survived, so it's possible that maybe we've got a, an original of one of his stones uh, from this family group. Uh, but uh, this is called the, the Deacos uh, monument. Uh, but I couldn't really say what happened to Lysippus uh, after that. He's not really in my, my area of expertise, That's other than he, he sort of spearheads the early Hellenistic uh, period um, and this okay. new fashion for manipulating naturalism to make things uh, look better this changing of proportions so that uh, heads get a little bit smaller legs get a little bit longer everybody looks somehow like they've been sort of a photograph shot from from below to make them look you know, tall and, and sleek and elegant um, so he's part of that new new fashion, but his his biography is not really my uh, my area of expertise. Yeah, I understand. Uh, is is uh, diversity is that is that a, a word that you think um, properly describes? Uh, if 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 a word could be used to describe this this period for for art, there were there was an increase in diversity in the art. Absolutely, yeah, that's a great word. That's exactly what's happening. Um, this wide new world opening up. People seem really intrigued by the variety of life around them and different people and even different races. There's a really obvious, clear, distinct corpus of um, African uh, individuals being depicted in Hellenistic art. So we get sort of an exploration of race as well as old age. And um, so women, traditionally in Greek art from what we have, tend usually to have, uh, tend to be the subject of art that's supposed to be beautiful. In Hellenistic art, we get old women with no teeth and, you know, saggy boobs. It's a, it is a real interest in diversity and it seems like it's supposed to be sort of challenging people's uh, expectations about what they're looking at, but it's, it's really interesting that they're embracing this, not just in their art, but also if you read the poetry of the period too, exactly the same kind of thing is happening. Are there two other artists um, that you'd like to, that come to mind, that, that you'd like to share with everybody um, as to, to really just, to, to flag in this, in this period, as artists in this period, are there two that come to mind and, and if so, who are they and, and why? Do you want to flag them? Do you know, I don't want to flag major artists because I, don't think that gives a very helpful insight into the wealth of the period. I think we've got quite a tendency to 
um, elevate art that are attached to big names. And th there weren't big names in ancient art. But what's exciting about the Hellenistic period is all the stuff that's made by people that we have totally forgotten. So all of the grave reliefs of you know, quite normal people that show these amazing scenes of their domestic lives, of them you know, reading at home. These are so much more interesting than kind of mega works made by, by well-known artists. Okay, and for the record, I didn't say they had to be well known. <laughs> I just said two artists. <laughs> we, we often don't find we often don't find out their names. Sometimes in honorific portraits, you know, it's part of the decree that you know so and so is being going to going to have this honorific statue, and you know so and so might make it. Um, but, but I just don't think that the names of the artists necessarily is is the most interesting thing about. Uh, about Hellenistic art, it's the subject matter that's completely bonkers. Understood. Fair enough. Fair enough, uh, Janie. Okay, um, so let's work our way into some um, work our way into some some wrap up uh, questions here. So, um, ceramics and pottery that pertain to art. How how would you describe if there were differences? How would you describe how at a high level how um, ceramic art changed from, let's say, Greece, working, uh, working our way eastward to, let's say, the Anatolian Peninsula, Levant, if we, for this question, um, for the sake of this question, group them in that same region, and then, and then let's say, Egypt. Is there, is there any kind of pronounced differences um, in how uh, cer ceramics were being produced in that period as it pertains to art? Uh, I think this question might be a write-off, Andrew. I'm not really a ceramics person. Oh, okay, no worries. No worries. Yeah, you know, my answer would probably end up talking about Tanagra figurines again because they are ceramic. But <laughs> no problem. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Let's keep it to the uh, the, the areas that uh, you can you can speak um, uh, yeah. about. Um, okay, so okay, so a uh, uh, similar type of question, Janie. Um, so if you were to uh, Okay, so so we have these same areas. I'm going to use the same area. So let's use the the, the co kind of common day terminology. So you have you have the uh, the, the Greece. Um, you have the uh, if we say as one one area, then you have the um, then you have the uh, let's say the Anatolian Peninsula and through through the Levant and then and then uh, and then and then Egypt. In each of those regions, what what stands out? for you as what might have been popular or distinctive i know we're talking about a lot of diversity but but in terms of what maybe was more pronounced in your research in those areas does something come to mind in each of those areas yeah oh, that's a great question it's difficult to say whether the stuff that i get excited about in the places that you've mentioned mm. is because they were really big fashions there or whether it's just because that's what we happen to have excavated in those particular areas but i would say the stuff that I think is really interesting on, say, mainland Greece, particularly the Hellenistic tombs that I mentioned in Virginia, that completely blew out of the water everything that we knew about ancient Greek painting. In fact, we knew very little about ancient Greek wall painting, and suddenly we had these series of tombs filled to the brim with amazing Hellenistic artefacts, but just painted in this unbelievable, glorious style with highlights and shading and three-dimensionality. Um, it makes the kind of um, medieval brown school of Madonna and child um, painting look very sad indeed. So I think 
for Greece, that would be the stuff that I think everybody should look at. Um, in Asia Minor, I think, I mean, there's so much to see. And if anybody visits the sites down the coast of Asia Minor, so Priene, Ephesus, Didyma, Aphrodisias, the scale and use of marble is really extraordinary because they have large quantities of marble available there. So the quality and frequency of really showy uh, materials there is very impressive. I think particularly these honorific statues is really exciting in in um, along the coast. I just love the idea of all these little cities and these citizens are spending their lives uh, sort of competing with one another for magistracies and showing off and building their CV and then at the end of it they get this statue that they've always wanted. It sort of seems so um, recognisable. It's you know so many ways of life. This is just how people spend their lives. Um, down in Egypt, that really is the heartland of this diversity theme that we've been talking about, particularly in Alexandria itself, where we've got the Library of Alexandria. It's like the first major university research library. It's a place that's crammed with intellectuals and it's crammed with researchers and the medical schools also thriving in Alexandria. It's got a lot of royal money pumping into it. And so out of that incredible hothouse of royal money and research, you get this amazing art movement that's uh, and a lot of these bronze objects, particularly of the disabled, so particularly skeletal deformities and dwarfism, they are uh, very commonly associated with, with Alexandria. And of course, it's a port as well. So, you know, they're, they're used to different people coming and going. So Alexandria is, is a real hotspot for uh, life in its many and exotic forms. Do you remember the first time that you were personally enthralled or captivated by a piece of uh, art? Do you, do you remember that, that moment at all? I think two things spring to mind. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky that my parents used to take my very big family and my cousins um, uh, to Greece every summer and on the, on the penultimate day before we would go home I was allowed to ride on the back of a donkey which I thought was the most exciting thing mm -hmm. uh, and we would be ridden up to the Acropolis of Rhodes. We used to go to the city of Lindos and I was allowed to look at the, the ruins from the back of a donkey feeling very grown up. I guess a lot of, of what I do now must go back to that aged three, four, five um, some kind of exploration in these hot, dusty tracks uh, in, in Greece. I suppose I recapture some of that. The second thing that, that sprang to mind was the very first time I went to the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, which has um, undergone quite an overhaul. I'd been studying Hellenistic art as a postgrad for a while, but I hadn't got to see much of it in the flesh. I'd been doing it as an armchair library historian back in Oxford in the libraries. And I went into the Pergamon Museum, paid my fare, I walked straight around the corner and instantly, bam, was hit in the face with the great altar of Pergamon, which is this enormous, incredibly elaborate wedding cake of uh, a monument. And I wasn't expecting it and I, I burst into tears. 
and I had to sit down on a bench and this woman and her child took one look at me and edged away very slowly. Um, but I hadn't been prepared for just the sheer sort of scale mm. of the whole thing. And it was at that point, I think I was an MA student, that I thought, you know, this clearly is, uh, I, I'm clearly moved by this stuff, you know, and you need to have enthusiasm to get through any kind of post-grad study. I wouldn't wish on anyone doing a, a MA or a doctorate in, in, in material that they're not interested in. You have to have something to carry you through. And if you can if you can burst into tears seeing something in the flesh for the first time, I think that's probably a pretty good reason to carry on doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And what was it about the Hellenistic period for you that you wanted to spend all this time uh, researching and producing scholarly work, work on? What was it about this particular um, period in time? Because it's just so odd. Uh, life in all its varieties and the fact that time and space is given to humanity in all of its very strange forms. I find that far more interesting than um, the sort of very po-faced um, material of, of the classical period that we have surviving. Of course, I'm sure the classical period was much more varied, but we've only excavated in certain places and we only tend to look at the stuff that was set up in very formal uh, situations, you know, like things that have been found on the Acropolis. It's a little bit like, you know, judging modern dress by just looking at wedding photos. You know, we tend to judge classical art by these big monuments from sanctuaries. I'm sure there was much more, but uh, with Hellenistic art, we just have these images from all kinds of different contexts that show art being used by real people. I'm much more interested in the unnamed and unknown everyday person living in the period than I am by any of the famous names. This has been a fascinating and pleasurable conversation, Janie. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Masaglia wrote, she's author of Body Language and Hellenistic Art and Society. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Janie and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.